Not sure what to make for dinner? Need some inspiration? Join Gabriel and his food hero guests every Wednesday on The Dinner Special. And now, here's your host, Gabriel So. Welcome to The Dinner Special. I am Gabriel So, and I'm so happy to have Kathy Irway of Not Eating Out in New York with me here on the show today. From 2006 to 2008, Kathy made a commitment to stay away from eating out in restaurants, having street food and takeout, so she could explore other avenues of not eating out. She wrote a book about her experience called The Art of Eating In. More recently, Kathy published a cookbook that looked into her mother's home cooking roots called The Food of Taiwan. In addition to her writing, Kathy has been interviewing guests on her weekly podcast, Eat Your Words, on Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Kathy, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure, Kathy. Let's go back real quick 10 years to 2006. What made you decide on committing to not eating out in New York? You know, I just, it was a series of frustrations, like a bad restaurant meal here and there. Who, who hasn't had that? And then felt like, gosh, I could make something much better. Let me just like figure out how to get into the habit of it. I think that's the hard part is getting into the habit of it. It's a routine switch rather than like a food or I think an eating preference for many people. So that happened. And then at the same time, I wanted to start a food blog. And at this time, 2006, most of the food websites and blogs that I saw were all about restaurant gossip, you know, the hottest new chef, this opening, that closing and all that stuff. And I wanted to do something different because I didn't think that food has to be about the industry of restaurants necessarily which is fun, but I also didn't have the budget for it too. So, you know, who does when you're young and you're into food and you drop, you know, 50 plus dollars on a meal. So I decided to make my blog about home cooking. And then I wanted to give myself a challenge and give the blog something new to talk about. Now, were you cooking for yourself already before this project? Yeah, I had a lot of fun with it, cooking more and more frequently with friends. I had a roommate then, so it had become a bit of a passion. So yeah, it seemed like the right time. And how did you get into cooking? How did you learn to cook? That goes back to my parents, just watching them in the kitchen. And I would just love to hang around and, you know, smell the delicious smells and watch the action. My mom typically would make a a very quick stir fry for dinner. And so it's fun to watch. You know, you see like colorful vegetables being chopped up and it's all very, you know, quickly stir fried and it's just fun. So I felt like it wasn't intimidating to me. And my mom never like stressed or worried about, she never looked at a recipe in her life actually. So (laughs) yeah, it didn't seem difficult, I guess, from an early age. So you kind of picked it up through osmosis and just being exposed to it a lot. Yeah, I think so. Cool. Well, what was something besides cooking for yourself more often that took some getting used to when you were starting this project? Well, you know, the social dilemmas of not eating out in New York were actually some of the most fun adventures that I had that I like regaled in my book. But it was tough because you have to have a social circle that, well, you don't have to, but you got to have to like try to bring people together in a communal situation that doesn't have to do with restaurants. So that meant for me at the time, potlucks, dinner parties. And then I got really into throwing like cook-offs and going to them and participating in all sorts of community events. And then there was supper clubs and all these like really fun, amazing 
community events to do. So that became my social life. And I met a lot of my friends through those. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it brings a lot of people together that you probably wouldn't have met otherwise if you were just eating out in restaurants all the time. Yeah, exactly. You don't really meet people when you go to a restaurant, right? Yeah, you're just hanging out with your friends. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You listed one of your experiences that you explored during this time. You listed dumpster diving. Can you talk a little bit about this? Yeah, I was intrigued. So I wanted to explore all the ins and outs of what not eating out in New York meant. And I was interested in foraging in the park. So I I learned, you know, that many people were doing this, gathering, you know, dandelion greens for a salad and this and that. So I went on a couple of walks of that. I also heard about freeganism. You know, the concept is basically reusing. So if you've ever picked up some books that you saw on the street or a chair, this is pretty much like that, except... It's good food (laughs) that is being wasted by a supermarket or who knows what, maybe it's a restaurant or something like that. But for the most part, the freaking circles that I ran into and um, explored and went on walks and trash diving, you know, tours with in New York City, it was restaurant. I mean, sorry, it was supermarkets and also bakeries, too. Bakeries have so much leftover at the end of the day. I mean, if you walk into a nice bakery and you see all those bagels or croissants or something at the end of the day, they're going into a dumpster. Yeah. So, yeah. It's pretty crazy. I mean, I used to work at Safeway and like at the end of the night at the bakery, you know, there would be like tons and bags and bags of like bagels and baked goods. And I was just like, where's this all going? And they're like, well, we have to throw it out. I'm like, why? It's perfectly good food. Yeah. It's crazy. There also might be a problem of just overproducing for the looks and on the shelf. Because who wants to go into a bakery that has one cookie left, you know? Right. So they purposely overproduce, I think, sometimes. Just look nice. Right. Now, your book that you got from this, how did that come together? So I was writing the blog, Not Eating Out New York. Yes. For a couple of years when I got approached by an agent. And at that point, I didn't have an idea for a book. Cookbook didn't seem quite right, but the agent wanted me to write a memoir, but I didn't really have the story yet. I had, I felt like I was just getting into it. I was just learning about all these interesting communities like the Freegan. So I wasn't quite there yet. So I really sat on the idea for about a year or so until I began writing this book. And it was great. It was definitely written almost in real time too but it pushed me to explore more folks who are doing really interesting things with food and just get out there and explore the topic hopefully in the time and place that it was existing in right well most of us we all lead busy lives and grabbing a takeout or dropping by a restaurant you know on the way home just seems a lot easier what would you say to get us to start cooking more and enjoy eating in more? What are some of the things that you love about eating in? I think that people have this misconception like it's really lonely and it's kind of sad. And they have this image of like a person in their small, insufficient kitchen with their insufficient cookware and so forth. So to get started, I would have a dinner party with a few good friends who you don't mind just getting a little messy in the kitchen with and maybe messing up some dishes with. And you'll see it's a lot of fun. And what will happen usually is that it becomes this domino effect and your other friends will want to like host a dinner next. And then you'll go from there and you'll want to also improve upon something that, that you made last time. So 
it has an infectious quality to it. And I think that's a fun way to really get into cooking. And also, I mean, you think you mentioned earlier that it's a habit that you have to sort of form. I think we all have habits of just convenience, maybe, um, rather than maybe the habit of, you know, inviting friends over or just cooking in and eating in, you know, with ourselves. Yeah. But the funny thing is that the habit, it actually is easier once you're cooking more often because you have not only just more know-how about what works when you're cooking, but you have all these leftover odds and ends in your fridge, right? So it actually becomes easier to just heat up that rice and then make fried rice with your like half a head of broccoli and something else rather than order out. So convenience, it can actually happen more often when you're cooking. At least I find it that way. No, that's a good point, right? Like you have all this leftover chopped up vegetables or like like mm-hmm. the meat's already cooked and you have rice, you just mix everything up and it's a lot faster than ordering takeout. It's totally faster. You have a pot of black beans and you're like, oh, maybe I'll make some tacos or I don't know what, something awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Let's fast forward now to 2015. You wrote a book last year called The Food of Taiwan. Yeah. Can you tell me more about the book? Okay, sure. So this was like such a long anticipated desire for me to accomplish at some point. It took a long time, a lot longer than I thought. So the food of Taiwan, I think, is something that a lot of folks who are interested in food would find super delicious and interesting. And all the you know flavors that go into this wonderful tropical island and all the cultures that have contributed to it is really interesting. It's where my mom grew up. But growing up, and even you know to this day as a young person in New York, that little is talked about with regards to Taiwan and especially Taiwanese food. And when I was shopping this book around originally, this was in 2011. In fact, a lot of awkward conversations would arise when people just didn't really know what Taiwan was or where it was or why we should talk about the food of Taiwan. Like, how is it different from the other Chinese food I would hear all the time? And I'm like, well, you know, people are starting to understand a little bit more about the different regions throughout Asia, not just in China. And it's also catching on in, you know, restaurants. You see people getting into Thai food. You see people getting into Korean food. You see all sorts of niches and Sichuan food, for instance. That's huge. So it took a lot of convincing and a lot of patience and perseverance. But finally, we made it happen. How was writing this book, which is a cookbook, different than writing the Art of Eating In book? I think the hardest part for me was choosing about 100 recipes that I felt would really exemplify Taiwanese food because I don't really have much of a precedent to go on. This is what I was hoping would be the most comprehensive English language cookbook about Taiwanese food. You know, I've seen some cookbooks in Taiwan, of course, but there tend to be like, you know, street foods or home style foods or something like that. And I wanted to combine both home style and street food to show what is really celebrated on the island right now in food. Right. And also like older old-fashioned Taiwanese food with like newfangled Taiwanese food and I wanted to like represent that all so that was really difficult for me to whittle it down to 100 recipes and you know what's the right one and all that stuff and then of course you know write all the recipes for it my favorite part of course is writing the intro and like the culture and the history lessons in it I think it's really interesting that you mentioned also that, you know, Taiwanese food doesn't really have an identity like Chinese food or like Thai food that's so established. 
if I was someone who didn't know about Asian cuisine at all, how would you describe Taiwanese food? And how would it be different than maybe Chinese food, I guess? I would have to start with a little bit of an orientation and just say that it's a tropical island. So there's beautiful fruits and vegetables, lots of herbs used throughout. But it has mostly Fujian descendants from China. So this is southern, eastern Chinese people. And then there was 50 years of Japanese rule in Taiwan. So there's influence from that cuisine as well. And then also when the Nationalist Party were fleeing the communists at the end of the 40s, 1940s, all like walks of mainland Chinese life entered Taiwan. So that there's today we see a nice little hodgepodge of like northern style dishes like noodles and steamed buns and so forth throughout Taiwan too. So... (laughs) That was a really long-winded explanation. <laughs> Let's just say it has the best of the best. <laughs> right. A good fusion of the best. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Kathy, what would a traditional Taiwanese meal look like? So Taiwanese are actually really seasonal, and they take pride in local specialties and seasonal specialties. So it really depends on the time of year. For instance, people love really fresh, pure, and not overly seasoned specialties like fresh bamboo shoots, for instance. You know, you wouldn't want to mess with that with too much sauce or anything like that. You just want to taste that purity of the wonderful ingredient. Or it could be bitter melon, for instance. You know, it's something really, really pure. So I think that to harmonize with the meal, you want one really shining star vegetable like that on the plate. And I would say that you would want a nice, rich, heavy meat. So there's a lot of pork belly used in Taiwan, and they do it very, very well. I would do like a red braised pork belly, nice little dish. You would also typically serve that with something a little sour and pecans, so like maybe some pickles, pickled cabbage, for instance, nice little crunch and contrast. And then I would do, ooh, maybe like a more kind of simmered, you know, braised dish. So three cup chicken is really great or three cup squid, which is similar. And this is like a sort of clay pot simmered dish with lots of ginger, garlic and chilies and basil at the end. Wow. So with those three things, I think you can have a wonderful meal just right there. I'm hungry. (laughs) (laughs) Are there some ingredients, I mean, you mentioned the herbs, like the basil and stuff like that. Are there some ingredients or pantry items that every Taiwanese home has to have in stock and ready to go? Yeah, kind of. I think that one thing they do have a lot of is little fried shallots, which is an excellent garnish. They're crunchy and they add a little like savory, a little topping to anything. It could just be like a pile of sautéed greens. So sprinkle those on. Or some crushed peanuts would do a similar trick. White pepper is pretty widely used in dishes. And uh, five spice powder, but that's more to kind of marinate things or cook into a stew. Aside from that, there's really not that many crazy ingredients. This is not a too heavily spiced cuisine. It is not ultra spicy. It is not ultra sweet. You don't need all these crazy pastes, for instance. So it's pretty accessible. Yeah. Now, besides your book, The Food of Taiwan, for someone who wants to learn more about Taiwanese food and cooking, are there some good online resources or books that you found as you were sort of doing your research for your book? I really tried to scour the edges of the earth for that. 
when I was in Taiwan, I would pick up little cookbooks wherever I could. And yeah, I mean, okay, so in actually America, there is a Taiwanese American organization that put out a book that's like a little spiral bound book. It's a San Francisco Taiwanese American Association, I think. It is called Homestyle Taiwanese Food. That came out maybe 10 or so years ago, but it was it was just kind of like a, what do you say, like a church, you know, cookbook, <laughs> because it was just recipes, not really any backstory about any of the dishes. And I really wanted to learn the backstory. So the best way to find out the legends about these dishes was to go to the people, go to Taiwan and talk to people. Right. And of course, you've done that in your book. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> awesome. Well, Kathy, I want to quickly talk about your podcast. Sure. You've done over 250 episodes. <laughs> That's like insane. Yeah, I know. <laughs> For anyone who's not familiar with it, can you talk a little bit about the show? Sure. So Heritage Radio Network is a wonderful nonprofit, 501c3 nonprofit podcast radio station. And at first, it was just a really kind of random sort of outgrowth of Heritage Foods USA. And our station was and still is of a little converted shipping container in the backyard of Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. So over the years, that little shipping container has gotten heat and air conditioning. <laughs> and we have also become a, an actual nonprofit and we have many more shows than what what was the case when the station began in 2009. I think there was like five shows I happened to be a guest on somebody's show in 2009, uh, Snacky Tunes, Greg and Darren Resonances. And then I had this idea for a show. They, after like one conversation, it, was, it just happened. And it's been going since. It's been really fun. And I find it, it's like really a great way to talk to people, I guess, uncut and get real reactions and have a, a real kind of, you know, fun conversation with folks. Right. Well, I mean, as I mentioned, you've done over 250 episodes over the span of the show. If someone were to start listening today, are there a couple of episodes that stand out and would be maybe good starting points for diving into the archives? Let's see. One of my favorite heroes in food, Sander Alex Katz, joined us for an episode. He wrote The Art of Fermentation and Wild Fermentation. He's just such an amazing brain. It was so great to get him on air. So definitely check that out. And I really enjoyed interviewing an old sort of restaurant, female restaurateur legend named Nora Poyan. And she opened the first certified organic restaurant in the 70s. And she was just a real pioneer in the food movement. So it was lovely to have her on air. She talked about her memoir. That was more recently. In the past, the show has taken so many twists and turns. So nowadays, I focus on food and books as the premise. But in the past, I used to focus on food and dating. So if you scroll down throughout the archives, you'll see some fun ones. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Definitely check those ones out. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, Kathy, here at the dinner special, we talk with food heroes about dishes that are special to them and how we can make it at home. Okay. Can you talk about a dish that is special to you and maybe the story behind the dish? So I guess being really practical and just setting you up for a really great success is a dish that is so delicious that I just don't understand why more people aren't making it. And it is miso marinated oily fish of some sort. So fill in the blank with mackerel or bluefish 
or salmon perhaps, if that's your cup of tea. And I've made this, and every time I have made this for folks, they just they can't get over how tasty it is. You have to really marinate the miso paste in the fish for a few hours before and then rinse it completely so there's no grittiness on the fish. And then you just give it a simple sear, and it's just the most succulent, tasty thing. You don't even have to salt it because those floral nuances but also the saltiness of the miso is all soaked in that nice, oily, fleshed fish. I once did, a few times, I did like a supper club dinner where I served this with bluefish, which is, I think, a a tricky fish because a lot of people are hesitant. They don't like more like kind of fishy tasting fish. Anyway, so there was a French couple who was there. And afterwards, they just couldn't stop raving. They're like, the fish was amazing. Fish (laughs) (laughs) was amazing. And me and my friends just couldn't. Every time we like said fish for the rest of the night, we were like, fish. (laughs) so adorable. Sorry. I don't know why I'm making fun of people's accents, but it was just very memorable. Awesome. Well, I mean, let's say that you were uh, making this miso marinated fish and you could invite three famous people over to share this with. Who would you invite over? Okay. I'd invite Hillary Clinton. I don't know why. I just want to see her eat more. Like I want to like have a real conversation with her where she's not like put upon and like on stage of some sort. So I would like to see her chill out, have some really good food and have, have some wine and relax and have some good food. Yeah. I would like to have this fish with Alice Waters. I think that she'd be such a good egg to talk to. And since I think she would actually get along pretty well with Hillary, don't you think? I think so. Be a really great like conversation. Awesome. So let's say we're all chilling together and we're having this miso marinated fish. What movie would you pair with this dish? <laughs> I would watch actually a documentary called The End of the Line. It's about, this is really depressing, but it's about (laughs) overfishing in the U.S. and all the important issues regarding the lack of regulation about fisheries in the U.S. Okay, that'll make us enjoy our meal a little bit more. Think about it, yeah. Yeah, appreciate a bit more. I call the next part of the dinner special podcast The Pressure Cooker. I'm going to ask you seven fast and fun questions that we want to know your answers to. Are you up for it? Yes. Okay, great. Number one, which food shows or cooking shows do you watch? I don't really watch any. (laughs) Sorry. That's fine. Number two, (laughs) what are some food blogs or food websites we have to know about? I would say go to No Recipes. Mark Matsumoto is awesome. I've always liked Food 52. I love Amanda and Meryl. And... Chitra Agarwal, the ABCDs of cooking, is my girl, so definitely check her out. Number three, who do you follow on social media (laughs) that uh, make you happy? There are so many snarky Twitter accounts out there, and they always make me happy when people are joking about this and that. I'm looking at a book right now. Lucky Peach has some good posts. I'll give them that credit for it, because they have some great photos, too. So let's say Lucky Peach. Number four. What is the most unusual or treasured item you have in your kitchen? Well, I do have these old molds that you're supposed to put mooncakes in, and I love them. I don't really use them because it looks like they're beautifully, like, hand-carved wooden molds with all these, like, ornate patterns, you know, that would show up on a mooncake on the surface. But I actually tried to use them, but it's, they really just, the dough gets stuck in those crevices. So, but I love having them just around. I usually put you know, something inside and uh, just kind of leave it there. But yeah, they're just beautiful old cooking tools. 
Number five, name one ingredient you used to dislike that you now love. Okay, so for me, that would be cheese. I am still trying to like many types of cheese. So the stinkier, the blue cheese, I'm not quite there yet. But since my 20s, you know, I've been trying to eat more, trying to like more cheeses. And I know that this is crazy when it comes to most of the foodies that I know. So it's like always been my Achilles heel, not really having a taste for cheese growing up. I don't know why. Gotcha. I think it's like an Asian thing too, maybe like a little bit. Probably. Yeah. We're not brought up eating a lot of cheese. Yeah. <laughs> Number six, what are a few cookbooks that make your life better? Oh, I love, let's say, Marcella Hazan's Essentials of Italian Cooking. I love Elizabeth Ando's Washoku, uh, Homestyle Japanese Cooking. I learned so much from these books. They're so comprehensive and they just take such a deep dive into all these classic uh, recipes from a culture that, you know, I didn't grow up eating. and I definitely love eating. So, so um, those are some really great staples. But on that similar note, I love to collect really great books about fill in the blank region. So I have a really great book about Portugal right now. I have a great book about Senegal, all through the lens of food. So bring it on, like every single country I want to collect a cookbook of. Perfect. And finally, the last question, number seven, what song or album just makes you want to cook? Lately, I've been listening to a lot of uh, Latin boogaloo. So I will say Joe Batan's Riot right now. It's just so much fun. It's like groovy 60s Latin New York jazz. It's awesome. Awesome. Well, congratulations, Kathy. You have officially survived the pressure cooker. <laughs> Thank you. Kathy, thank you so much for joining me here on the Dinner Special Podcast. Now, you're on social media. What's the best way for us to keep posted with what you're up to? Check me out at Kathy Irway. That's my handle on Twitter. Also, just go to noteatingoutinny.com. Perfect. And of course, be sure to check out your podcast as well. Yes. It's called Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. So it's heritageradionetwork.org. You just click on the shows, find mine. And check out others too. They're awesome. For sure. Well, thank you again, Kathy, for taking the time to chat with me. I hope you had a good time. Yeah. Thanks so much, Gabriel. Thank you for listening. Head on over to thedinnerspecial.com for recipes, highlights from every show, super blog articles, and all the wonderful ways to keep in touch on social media. Your culinary journey awaits, so let's get cooking.